the text appointed for the sermon is taken from the gospel. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk? But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, this week I was down in Florida, actually, uh, and I was in Orlando for our annual synod. And a synod is an annual meeting of the diocese. All the churches in the diocese uh, come together uh, to meet. And we discuss the past year and the developments that have happened. And we also look forward to the next year, setting a new budget, setting new uh, ideas for the ministry. And at every synod, uh, the bishop will talk and kind of set our focus on for the upcoming year. And this year, Bishop Chad... Uh, gave a talk that focused on uh, the Anglo-Catholic Church and our mission in the world, which is the ministry of reconciliation. It's bringing man back to God. And so that mankind may be drawn to God's blessed kingdom and be able to worship him. Our own corner of the church is very, very small. And yet, it is very special God has placed us where we are, at a time, particular place, and we have inherited this task of reconciliation now, and the Lord acts through us. We don't have this beautiful liturgy and this deep spiritual tradition in order just to keep it to ourselves, but to share it with others, bringing those outside into the kingdom. And this was a helpful reminder of our mission here at All Saints, our mission as an outpost in the kingdom of God, following the example of the apostles as they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in their prayers. That's our life. That's our work, lived out through the Anglican tradition and liturgy. It's our mi mission of reconciliation and a mission, though, that has not really changed since the Garden of Eden. Think all the way back to Genesis. And we see humanity in communion with God, walking with God in the Garden. And after the fall, man wants to get back to that communion. But trying through his own force does not work. Building our own towers does not work. And so God seeks after his people by forgiving the people in order to heal them from their wounds so that they may come back into his presence. But it is a misunderstanding to think that God's uh, history of redemption, his kind of plan of redemption, is this some kind of direct theocratic kingdom, as if God never really intended to use humans. No, I mean, just look at Moses, the prophet. God works through Moses to bring his people out of slavery. For all of history, God has always intended to work with his creation, his people, in order to build his kingdom. And when we look at this whole story, the narrative at large 
we see that God intended to be present with his people always through mediation, always with working through others. And in fact, uh, God always intended for his people, Israel, to be led by a king, a human king. In Deuteronomy 17, this is way before they actually have possessed the land, uh, God says, When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and dwelt therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the other nations that are about me, then shalt thou set up a king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren. Shall thou set king over thee, that thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So God always intended for Israel to have a king lead them as a mediator, as a leader between God and the people. Now, there were stipulations for this king. And so Deuteronomy 17 goes on to lay out what the king should and should not do. And so he goes on and says uh, that the king has to be from Israel themselves. Neither shall he bring them back to Egypt. That's a good one. Neither shall he have multiple wives. Neither shall he turn his heart and multiply silver and gold to himself. Instead, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, then shall he write him a copy of this law in a book, and it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God. And so a proper king is actually a biblical scholar. That was the intention. That is the role of the king. So the question in front of Israel is not whether or not to have a king, but what type of king should they have? In what type of kingdom? And so when the people ask for a king, you find that they don't ask in the way that God wanted them to ask. And so Saul uh, takes the kingdom, but he fails. David takes the kingdom, and he does very well, and he does fail, but he seeks after forgiveness and is restored under a certain judgment. When Solomon took the rule of Israel from David, his father, he then also took on an obligation to build a house of God, a temple. And when it was completed, Solomon gathered all of Israel together in front of the temple, and he offered up a very important prayer to God. And in this prayer, we can see Solomon laying out the intention, the purpose of Israel. And so Solomon says, Lord, hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they should pray toward this place, the temple. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. You notice here that the purpose, one of the purposes of the temple is now that the people can pray towards a place to be forgiven and healed so that they may come back into communion with God. And the prayer is very long. I will not recite the whole thing. But I'll mention that Solomon goes on to mention forgiveness many times. Forgive the nation of Israel when they trespass. Forgive the nation when they have done evil and are taken by foreign enemies. Forgive the nation of Israel when they have done evil and there is famine. And he goes on and on. At the end, in the final benediction, which, which 
has this summary of the whole prayer. Solomon says, So that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. So notice now it expands outside of Israel and now it goes that this temple, the place of forgiveness, which is the presence of God, is meant to be the place of reconciliation for all men. Solomon did not live up to his prayer. He looked away to foreign culture. He took foreign wives. He took a lot of money, and he ended up building altars to foreign gods. And so in 1 Kings 11, we learn the Lord was angry with Solomon, and so God raises up enemies even from among his own people. That man from Solomon's own people is Jeroboam. He's a man of war, and he rebels, and he takes ten tribes of Israel, and he breaks off to become the northern kingdom. And so then God promises Jeroboam the same thing, to rule over the kingdom if he obeys. But like Solomon and like David, like the Hebrews in the wilderness, like Adam himself, Jeroboam does not. And so Israel, which is already split in half, brings judgment upon herself again, for they don't turn back. They don't pray to the temple. They do not seek forgiveness and wholeness from Yahweh. That whole depressing narrative is our backdrop for today. Let me explain how. In every Mass, we have an epistle and we have a gospel. And some bemoan that there's no Old Testament lesson set apart. But the Old Testament is there in our Mass. In fact, it's all over our Mass in the propers, which are the introit, the gradual, the alleluia, the offertory, and the communion. And the whole Old Testament, through these small passages, are presented in order to understand the context and the revelation of the gospel, which then we chant. And it comes out to the people in that context of the Old Testament to be proclaimed to us. It's little bits, and they are short, and they will pass you by if our attention is not really clear. And what is more, they employ kind of an ancient expectation of memory, where they will mention one verse, and you're just supposed to know the whole rest of the psalm or the passage that they are quoting. We get this today. If I start and say, you know, and, oh, say, can you see? You know the rest of what I'm talking about, and I'm not going to sing it for you. I don't even have to, nor do you want me to. The same thing is here with the introit. The introit starts with the salus populi, which is a paraphrase of the end of Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David, a favorite of Origen and Augustine, actually. And it sounds very similar to the prayer that Solomon made, doesn't it? to pray to the Lord that he will help in tribulation. The second half of the introit, though, helps us understand what is meant by tribulation. This is taken from Psalm 78, which was written from Jerusalem, bemoaning the rebellion of Jeroboam, the split of Israel, and then the consequent judgment upon Solomon. So this psalm, Psalm 78, is kind of a key to understand what context what is the context of our gospel today? It's this. 
The context is division and sickness. It's also the key to help us understand what Jeroboam, Solomon, and David, and all the others, what they needed to do. What they needed to do was to incline their ears unto the words of God. What do they need? They need forgiveness. Forgiveness which leads to salvation. They need the wholeness of God. So notice then that salvation comes from God, but it is prescribed. There are bounds to it. There are ways into it. Follow the law, the psalm says over and over again. Listen to the words. So that's the context for the gospel today. The division and sickness of Israel in light of their kings who do not follow what God intended. When Jesus starts his ministry, after his temptation in the wilderness, it is striking that the first thing he proclaims is a new kingdom. In Matthew 4, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So given the context of the propers, of a divided, sick kingdom, we can see how Jesus' command to repent is the same as the judges, the prophets, and some of the kings. In some ways, it's a political statement because it's only the leaders of Israel who talk this way. And so Jesus is now offering himself as a leader of Israel. He's asking Israel to repent so that they can be forgiven, so Israel can be healed, and they can come back into communion with God. Even more striking, however, and this is more for another week, will be his claim that his own body is the new temple so that now forgiveness and worship and the presence of God Almighty is in him. He is Zion. He is wholeness. And he is the one who cannot be removed but stands fast forever. For those watching him, including the Pharisees, they recognize this boldness of the claim and they constantly watch Jesus to try to catch him in the trap. What we see in the gospel this week is Jesus defending his claim when his actions, with his actions to those who are skeptical. And so he enters into this ship. He comes to his own city and the people bring him a sick man. And when he actually offers forgiveness of sins, the Pharisees are very doubtful. And to show his authority to forgive, he heals the man physically. When the multitude saw it, they marveled. They glorified God who had given such power unto men. Because Jesus now has a claim of healing, that then defends his claim of forgiveness, of the one who is able to bring the people back to God, back into communion with God. In this forgiveness, we are given uh, physical and spiritual health. And even today, this is actually true. After Jesus ascends, he does not leave us as his king. He still rules as the king of the cosmos. He doesn't abandon his kingdom, but he establishes apostles as his ambassadors to the world. And notice that in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, when he 
gives power to his apostles, he starts by giving them the power to forgive. In John 20, then said Jesus to them again, and this is to the 12 apostles, peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so I send you. As my f and when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith to them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are also retained. And in Matthew 18, whatever you bind will be bound. And in Matthew 16, says the same thing to Peter when talking about the church. Here what we see is the king does not abandon his kingdom, but he sends ambassadors to be present in his stead. God has continued his kingdom on earth through these ambassadors as the apostles laid their hands on other men and they laid their hands on other men and so on and so forth. That is what we call apostolic succession. It's God being present through his king with his people. And we join into that through Bishop Chad Jones, who you all know, he has come to this parish, and he is a particular man in a particular place who shares with us this particular ministry of reconciliation. He has ordained, well, Bishop Grundorf did really, but he has ordained me and Father Mark and Father Glenn and Father Dan. And we then, in his stead, minister to all saints. This is the kingdom of God being spread. This is the kingdom of God working in our lives through forgiveness, bringing us back into the presence of God. Look again at the propers for this week as we go through this service. And again and again you will see them hinting at this theme of forgiveness, of healing, being able to follow God's word and God's law. You all are given the chance to confess your sins, to be forgiven in two different ways. You may confess your sins at the general confession at every Mass, and then the priest offers you absolution. For those of you who cannot quiet your conscience, you are offered to have private confession, to come to a priest and to confess your sins, receive counsel, and receive absolution. Forgiveness then heals us. It brings us back into the kingdom where forgiveness, it's not just a box to check off. It becomes our very culture. It becomes our very life. Look at, look at the epistle for today when St. Paul is trying to describe to the, this little church in Ephesus how to live. He says, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put that away. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Do you see? That now has become our culture. That's how we live. This is the life that we live out here at All Saints in this little outpost of God's kingdom. And we don't live it just for ourselves, but we live it for the sake of others and for the worship of God. That you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. 
Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. <laughs>